Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Jermaine Barnes witnessed the mad scramble before hurricane, and he thought about everyone left behind. Everyone who couldn't afford to flee in a plane or a car, those would be stuck after a storm without basic infrastructure, without electricity or water or cooking fuel, sometimes for weeks. He's thought about people riding a bus through his hometown of Chicago, how little inconveniences add up and act as barriers for the poor moving through the city, a lack of trees for shade, uncomfortable benches at a bus stop. Jermaine Barnes is an artist who uses architecture as his medium. He's an assistant professor at the University of Miami's School of Architecture, and he's also a gifted artist, a thinker. He tries to understand not just physical places, but the people, the communities who use them. His art's been displayed at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and right now you can catch his installation, Rock Roll, at the Miami Design District. He studied the role of the front porch in black communities, block parties in big cities, even incorporating South Florida's shotgun homes into his art. Jermaine thinks about all the ways physical architecture influences bigger structures, like politics, like culture. So let's talk to him about it. Welcome, Jermaine. Thank you so much for having me. That's so, a really cool intro. Well, I mean, you're a cool dude, so like there's there's so many places to start. Yeah. And and like one of the things that stood out to me is kind of in line with that is the idea of people using the spaces and thinking about that when you design them. And you said, um, specifically, you said, my grandmother knows more about designing kitchens <laughs> than some architects. Absolutely, absolutely. It's the language of things, right? It's the idea that um, just because someone isn't formally... Uh, educated as an architect doesn't mean they don't understand space. Right. And when we begin to speak to people on common terms, we realize that some of our experts are ones that might not have the degree or have the license, but someone that has so much institutional knowledge or common knowledge or infrastructural knowledge that we can all learn from that. What what does it take to get to that place, that place where you are, you know, you're not looking at the degree, so to speak, but you're thinking about people and, and how they're using a thing? I think it requires a lot of humility. Um, spe specifically because in architecture we're taught we are the experts. <laughs> right. uh, we're taught we know how to draw things, we understand concepts, we can turn something two dimensions to three dimensions, and it's our job to solve problems, right? It's always, what is the design problem, and now how do I solve that? Right. And I think if you begin to remove some of that thinking or unlearn it, and then begin to approach things as a partnership with the, the people who use the spaces, then you're able to gain that institutional knowledge that you might realize or didn't know that your granny has and has had for much longer than you've ever been around. <laughs> so I think, yeah, it takes that respect to the people who are going to end Absolutely. Up abs yeah. Absolutely. I think um, my first full rate understanding that was when I was living in Cape Town, South Africa. Okay. Yeah. I had an internship out there fresh after undergrad. And when I was there, I learned very quickly that many people know so much more than me. They just didn't have the means or accessibility to go to college. So instead, they just became apprentices and they can build a house or build a structure much better than someone who might have gone to Harvard or Princeton and has all this academic knowledge that may not be as useful out in the field. How, how did that come across? Like, when did when did that hit you? When did that knowledge hit you? Or how, was there a person that said something in particular? Yeah, uh, I was called stupid by my boss. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, uh, always a good way to start. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was working for this uh, South African architect named Sean J. McKay. He actually, for some reason, lived in Florida for about seven years he worked in Tampa okay. and then went back to South Africa he was my boss and we worked on these very expensive single-family homes
homes that were over two, three million rand. Okay. And so I would say like, all right, like what does this do for us? How does this help us? And he's like, shut up, stupid. You'll see what we do this for. <laughs> and so we get in the car and we drive out to Kailicha, which is one of the townships on the periphery of the city of Cape Town. And okay. it's, it's one of the most impoverished townships in the world. And we're out there doing a bunch of pro bono stuff where he's teaching the people how to build, how to design things and how to implement structures on their own. And he's like, this is why we do the big houses because this part we don't get paid and we need to keep the lights on. So those jobs keep money in our pocket, but this is the stuff that fulfills me. And it completely changed the way I saw space from that point forward. Oh, wow. And what a, what a great opportunity to, to, to see somebody's passion, yeah. not just what they were hired to do a job. Yeah. How do you think that affected you to see, to see somebody think about like that incorporation, that balance of doing things that keeps the lights on, yeah. <laughs> but also things that you are passionate about? It was, it was amazing because I never knew that architecture had that capacity. Hmm. Um, the way I was trained was purely you draw things, you go through the building department, it gets built, you move on to the next project. And right. you're a tool of the developer or you're a tool of the client and it's less about the people who actually inhabit these structures, the, the person that lives in unit 3B or the person that comes to the park. It's just, this is who pays the bills, do it. Right. And he showed me an alternative practice that you can also still keep the lights on, but be a humanitarian and do these things in a responsible way. And I think the best part about it was that it wasn't just an architect in the office. There was also an archeologist. There was also an urban planner and there was also a mediator. So it was this weird like combination of different fields that I was like, why is everybody here in an architecture office? But then when you begin to understand the archaeology of space and preservation, it makes so much sense for why we had an archaeologist on the on the staff. It makes sense why we had an urban planner. When you get into the legalese of all the contracts, it makes sense why we had a mediator there. Right. So right. it's sort of all. And I was only 22. Like, I didn't know anything. <laughs> so it was, I was just learning so much. It was awesome. Tell me about um, that leap, right, for going from from architecture to art. Right. Because it's not just I mean, you can show up to the, to the office and you do the work and you draw yeah. the lines and you hand in the paperwork. But something about your particular profession inspired the creation of art. Yeah, it was uh, it was very serendipitous. Um, I was in grad. So I came back from Cape Town. I moved to Los Angeles. I go to graduate school out there. Where did you go to school out there? At Woodbury University okay. in Burbank. So it's a little bit north. So all the movie studios and stuff are so oh, suburb okay. of L.A. proper. Um, I'm practicing. I graduate and I go get a job. And I'm working for this French guy, Xavier Veillon. And he's like this super critically acclaimed visual artist. He has permanent works at MoMA, at Centre Pompidou in, in France and everything. And I'm his apprentice for the whole summer. And that's something that you want, you specifically were interested in the creation no, of No, I had no clue. I thought oh, I was just what? going to work at an architecture firm. I thought we were just going to be doing architectural <laughs> stuff. And then he was like, yeah, we're going to be at an architectural house, but we're doing these installations within the house. We were at one of the most iconic Los Angeles homes, the Richard Neutra VDL house which is like an iconic home in Silver Lake. And that became my foray into blending art and architecture. Oh, interesting. So then how did you then, how did that lead then to you to start looking for your own expression of art? Yeah, so um, I'm out there working and I have a choice to go move to Paris to go work in John Nouvelle's uh, architecture office, Pritzker Prize winning architect. It's like amazing opportunity for a 25 year old. Sure. And then me and some colleagues won a competition in a little city called Opelaka, Florida. Oh, wow. And so I had to decide, do I move to Paris or do I move to Opelaka? And my parents were like, so you're going to Paris, right? We didn't make you <laughs> study 13 years of French. So you can go to some weird place called Opelaka. But I bet on myself. I was like, nah, I think this is the better play because I'll see more tangible results up front. 
Wow. What did tangible results mean to you? Like, why would, what does that mean? And why did that take you to, to bring you to Opalaka? So that's sort of the full circle of the Cape Town experience, because in Opalaka, I was able to be on the ground in the community, doing the work, helping people, doing stuff hand in hand, as opposed to being in an office where maybe I'm making models all day. I might never actually speak to a client. There's a hierarchy of things that I have to go through. And being so young, there's a large uh, rungs I have to go through before I get to that moment. Whereas in Opalaka, it was like, hey, I know you're a kid, but you better figure this out quick and go do it right now and meet these stakeholders in the community and start building stuff as soon as you get here. Wow. So what was the job in Opalaka? What were you do? What did you do in Opalaka? So I was working with the Opalaka Community Development Corporation, which is a small nonprofit, and we were developing uh, community assets for people in the area. So what does that mean, community assets? Uh, so we, we built a park. Um, oh. We built an urban farm. Uh, we took it over an old roofing company and turned it into an arts and recreation center so that now there's art galleries and offices inside of it. Wow. And so this was all something I would have never got the opportunity to do if I was in Paris. I mean, living in Paris is amazing. But I think as far as social impact and then how I was able to blend the things I learned doing my apprenticeship with this, it was like it was the perfect, perfect trajectory for me. You really were able to make an impact with those things, really being being able to affect people's lives. What, what did you see in Opalaka that that you saw that these things could be useful, could be helpful, could be fulfilling for, for that community? I saw a gap. I, I, I saw a gap in social uh, programs where people had the infrastructure, they just didn't have the facilities. So you have all these people who are willing to volunteer, who have the knowledge, have the ancestral knowledge, want to use it, want to give it to other people, want to share it, but they don't have amenities to do it. There is no location where people can be um, inside refuge to have a baby shower or to have a talk or to have a summer summer camp. And so it's like, how do we get these resources to people? Useful spaces. Exactly. Extremely useful spaces. And so that was it. That was working with people, listening to people, understanding like, no, we don't need anything fancy. We just need somewhere that if it starts to rain, because it rains a lot in Opalaka, yeah. can we go inside and then not interrupt our programming? And so you try to do the best you can with these very simple requests. And then from there, I sort of just say, you know what? I'm ready to go out on my own. And then I started Studio Barnes, which was just like the art and architecture size practice. And then fortunately, everything's taken off. So take me back a little bit. Okay. Uh, you, you talk about this idea of getting into architecture and art. How did, how did art for, first present itself to you as a kid? Like where did, art, where did architecture as art, architecture in general, that interest, where did that come from? Yeah, so that's all I've ever wanted to do. Um, I'm one of those uh, one of those weird kids who they know at a very young age I want to be an architect and like they you can't steer them away to anything else. Uh, fortunately, I have two parents that have nurtured that like, my entire life, so like everybody's not that fortunate. I'm very blessed to have that. Um, my first job, Carlos, like no no kidding, my very first job was as a painter because in Chicago there's this thing called the Mayor Daly's Kid Star. Because if you're under 16, you need a workers permit to work like parent permission. Okay. So this is for 14, 15 year olds who can't get the workers permit, but just something to keep us busy during the summer. Right. And so I said, it's something arts related and there's a neighboring uh, library and they were hiring kids to paint a mural. So for an entire summer, we just literally painted a mural for the local library. And that was my first ever job. Wow. And what so, a great <laughs> first like, job, man. It's like, that's how this stuff works, right? You look back on things and you're like, wow, I never realized all this stuff would come out the way that it did. Right. What did you, what was that mural of? I'm curious. It was literally know. just kids in the neighborhood. It was just like it was us kids drawing other kids in the neighborhood and they unveiled it at the end of the summer. I'm not sure if it's still there. It was there a little while ago. It's been a long time. I was 14, so it's 23 years ago. Oh, wow. So I'm not sure, <laughs> sure if it's still there. But yeah, it was awesome. What, what was the project? What was the part of town and like what was it trying to accomplish? So it was uh, there's a neighborhood called Austin. 
mm-hmm. which is a West Side area, which is where I'm from in okay. Chicago. And it was just a way, in their opinion, of getting kids off the street and keeping them busy for the summer, but also paying them. Um, and so I took it as, hey, this is an awesome way to kill my summer and do stuff working and draw. And I love to draw anyway. I'm actually getting paid for it. Like, Crazy. Awesome. What'd you get paid? We got paid like $5 an hour, man, <laughs> back in those days. But it was my money, though, right? Yeah, like, right. It was my money. Like, exactly. You could take it away from me. Mama's, mom always told me, save the first paycheck. So you put the first one to the side, you can spend the second, third. On Jordans. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. I thought that little $5 wouldn't give me a pair of Jordans. So I'll just ask my parents instead, can they buy them? Oh, nice. Yeah. Tell me about where you grew up. Because uh, Chicago, like a lot of American cities, has a lot of different communities. Very affluent and very poor. And oh, things absolutely. In be- and a lot of things in between. So these are, these are the things that sort of subconsciously shape the way I view built space. Okay. Because I'm from a two-parent household. Very lucky for that. Um, grew up in a home, very lucky for that. Yeah. But the neighborhood I lived in was not the best neighborhood. And okay. oftentimes that's because people of color prefer to live around other people of color, regardless of economic status, because safety is a word that's malleable. Hmm. So to a person that has more financial privilege but doesn't look like their neighbors, they may not feel safe in that area because they might be the one family that people want to police how they live, how they utilize their front porch, their back porch, the music they play, how often they cut their grass. So my parents were like, we're not leaving this neighborhood. We have a perfectly fine home that we live in that's perfectly safe. You just be careful when you walk outside of the home. So it's like this sort of duality between access and, and denial, right? So wow. I went to really nice schools that were not in my neighborhood. So going oh. around on the bus and seeing what the city looks like and how it changes, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the world. So you just never know if you never get outside of your little bubble. Right. Miami, too. Yeah. As I'm sure you can attest. Absolutely. So I lived on one side. I went to high school all the way downtown on the Gold Coast. So it was like a 45-minute bus ride. And you see the entire city change from like workforce housing all the way through super high sky rises where the average condo is like $3 million. Wow. Yeah. Like that was my daily commute until I got a car. Wow. Yeah. So so how did that drive, that daily drive start to work? As you think back, you know, yeah, yeah. How, how did it start to work on your on your 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 brain about, you know, what the world looked like and how you fit into it? Yeah, it it, it let me know very quickly that uh there were the haves and the have nots mm. and that the talents that I was beginning to to develop can be used to help the have nots because people who live in under resourced neighborhoods deserve public amenities that are of good quality as well. And so I've been able, fortunately, to use these design talents to bring those types of amenities, these types of communities, which is why I was so excited about moving to Opelika. My parents looked at me like I was crazy. It's like, Paris, South Florida. <laughs> like, are you really making this decision? Like, yeah, Ma, trust me. Like, you gotta trust me. I got the vision. And she said, what are you talking about, kid? You're not even 30 yet. Like, what type of, what type of vision could you possibly have? But I, I guess I saw something. That I think that speaks to like uh, a desire to want to make a mark, maybe like absolutely like a desire to to want to do your own thing and not just be a little cog in a bigger, more absolutely. prestigious uh, machine, right? Absolutely. You know, you make like the list of goals that you want, right? So one of my goals was I want to work for a Pritzker Prize with an architect. Like I'm big into like kung fu movies and stuff like that, and like the apprentice has to learn from the master in order to become the new leader, right? Give me the movies. Exactly. Give me the movies. Right. Give me the movies you watch. Come right. on. Okay. So so there's things like Bloodsport, Last Dragon. Uh, oh. Bloodsport is my favorite movie of all time. I'm not even going to just Bloodsport and Last Dragon. Like those two, yeah. we could just talk about that <laughs> just for like, an hour. You know, like those are my movies. I know a word for word when the Kumite song comes on, I go and say. And you got. Chung Lee. Absolutely. Chung Lee. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So those are the type of things I grew up on. So it's like the apprentice learns from the master, then eventually has to defeat the master to then become the person who runs the thing. And so in my mind, if I want to be the best architect in the world, I got to work for one of the masters and then eventually overtake the master. That Jermaine, was the- <laughs> who's the master? <laughs> that was and you really get good. to say, 
Yeah, I am. It's literally me. So that's that's what I was going for, right? So it's like it's this confluence of all these sort of influences from the the karate films, the Chicago fabric of the city to Cape Town, South Africa to sort of all come together and create the type of things that I'm interested in. That's really that's really cool. For those for those of you who are too young to know these movies, go rent Bloodsport <laughs> and definitely go rent The Last Dragon because Absolutely. go stream it. You don't even rent things you anymore. Don't. You just go stream it. Yeah. Um, uh, Jermaine, we're going to take a little bit, a uh, little break, okay. uh, but then we're going to come back. Uh, and we've been speaking with Jermaine Barnes, uh, who's an architect and artist, and uh, we'll be back on WLRN's Sundial. We're back on Sundial on WLRN. Uh, this is Carlos Frias. We're, th- we're with Jermaine Barnes. Uh, he's an artist and an assistant professor at the University of Miami's School of Architecture. He's also a huge uh, kung fu movie fan. Uh, and, and we've been talking about how you kind of, um, you blazed your own path, yeah. right? And one of the th- ways that led you to is, uh, is to create your own art. And your art right now is on display um, in the Miami Design District. Yes. Tell me about that piece. It's called Rock Roll. Uh, tell me about it a little bit. Uh, describe it for me and, sure. and, and what you tried to accomplish there. So Rock Roll is really my way of saying thank you to the city of Miami. Uh, Miami mm. is a city that sometimes gets a bad rap. Uh, but in my opinion, it's been pivotal into my development as a designer. Um, because it's a young city, it affords the possibility for young people to actually develop much faster than they would in maybe a city like Los Angeles or Chicago or New York. And it's allowed me to test a lot of theories, test a lot of things. And so Rock Roll is essentially my way of saying thank you to all the Caribbean communities that have welcomed me with with open arms. Right. Oh, nice. And one of the most amazing things about living here is Carnival. Oh, OK. The music, the noise, the, the parades, the regalia, the flowers, the colors, the vibrancy, the delight is so intoxicating. So Rock what, Roll is that. What was your first experience into Carnival? Oh, man. So I, I came here and had some friends that are from the Caribbean they're mm-hmm. like so we're going to go to Carnival I was like what the hell is that and you don't have you didn't grow up with like Caribbean not at all in Caribbean. Chicago it's not a thing it's right. like in Chicago it's pretty much a monolith it's just you're just black and right like, <laughs> like, that's it right <laughs> but you come to Miami that's not the case you come to Miami you could be Panamanian Jamaican Cuban Haitian Dominican it's all various flavors and, and striations and so coming here and being brought into that everyone was like we're going to embrace you teach you about our various cultures and why we're all so different mm-hmm. even though many people around the world think we're all the same Right. And Carnival was the first attempt. When I got there, my eyes got huge, like the food and the music and the people and everybody was just happy and dancing. And I was like, is this even legal? What is <laughs> happening right now? But it was amazing. And then Juve, where everybody's walking around and everybody's getting paint thrown over them. Like, I'm supposed to get paint thrown in my face? They're like, trust me, you'll enjoy when it's all done. And when it's over, you're like, oh, this actually is pretty awesome. Yeah. And so rock roll is my way of trying to transfer those rituals into physical objects okay and so there's a, a rocking apparatus like a rocking chair that's filled with these uh sort of colorful pool noodles because you can't talk about miami without talking about water right? right okay and so that's like your regalia if you sit inside of that you're wearing the costume of someone who's at the parade you're the king and queen that day and then I there's these hanging tree ornaments and the tree ornaments are steel to reference the steel drums that you hear when the parades are going by. And I can so hear it loud. in my head right exactly, now. Exactly, right? So when, the, when you get a gust of wind, the design district, all of them chime. And like you're literally hearing Carnival as you're walking through the neighborhood. And then the biggest thing is this huge disco ball. 
Okay. Because the disco ball like really references the big parades and floats that you see going around. People just literally take the music and the colors everywhere. And so we wedged it in between two buildings. So it kind of is like it's peeking out and looking at you. And if you look underneath it, it lights up. It plays music. We have a curated playlist that's like all Caribbean music. So whenever you walk by, you can just hear a bunch of noise. That's always carnival all year round, which, again, is my way of saying thank you, Miami, for being so welcoming, for being so warm. Um, I appreciate you, and this is a small token of what I can repay. That's great. Tell me a little, a little bit about uh, what you see in Miami design that is interesting to you, because Miami, like a lot of cities, has uh, has infrastructure design that is like cut over town in half. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, which which happened throughout the country. Yep. And and uh, I'm curious about what you see in Miami architecture that that interests you. So f- for me, it's it's the youth of the city. Is the fact that many people have the ability to make their mark at a much younger age here. Um, because it's so developing, you're able to get projects much quicker than you would in some of these other these other cities. Now, there are like the very hardcore, this is Miami typologies, like Art Deco on the beach or the Moorish revival architecture of Opalaka or the Mediterranean and Coral Gables that are like identifiably Miami, which have their own character and are extremely essential to the history of the city. But for me, it's the fact that Miami continues to rebuild itself. So I'm kind of really interested in the various versions, Miami 5.0, 5.2, 5.7, and how does it continue to develop, whether there might be a hurricane that forces it to go through its next change or or, uh, some sort of new infrastructure like 395, which I have no idea if that thing is ever going to be completed. I I don't think so. Not within our lifetimes. I have no clue. Our great grandchildren will talk about it. Yeah, but those are the type of things, in my opinion, that give you the new version of Miami. Maybe it'll be Miami 6.7. When those things finish, right? Have you seen that spider project? Have you have you looked at the the details? Of I that have. Thing? And I what have. what do you think? Come on, it, it seems a bit overwhelming um, as a way of moving through a city. Like I'm always a bit worried whenever I see large swaths of infrastructure like that. Like I recognize the need for job creation and things of that and that nature. But there's also something about bifurcating people in neighborhoods that is disheartening. Right. Where the more infrastructure you build, the more you actually displace because how can you have to make room for this stuff and if you making room for it, that means somebody's getting pushed out. Right. Yeah. This is a big question, but how do you fix that? How do you can I mean, how do you undo what some what a big project like that has done? Yeah, I mean the 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 magical taboo word that nobody wants to look at is that word reparations. Like that's mm-hmm. how that's how you do it. You say we recognize that these are the things that we've done. This is the the damage that we've caused. Here's a small way that we can repay, like literally repay because I think people found when they got some of those stimulus packages and stuff that you give people money and they can actually spend money on things. People's lives are a lot easier. Discretionary income is very important and the average person does not have discretionary income. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking about Ta-Nehisi Coates and that. I, yeah. did, did you did you read his essay? Uh, you know, The one in Atlantic? Yeah. Yeah. So. Years ago. It was kind of like the, it was like the, the Jerry Maguire memo, <laughs> basically, right? right. Absolutely. It's, it's one of those things where like some people get uncomfortable when you talk about uh, sort of historic wrongdoings and, and whatnot. And I think the best way to move forward is you have to acknowledge that these things happened in the past, address them, and then move forward. And like it's that, I think it's a bit of a relief that comes from honesty. And as long as you don't have that relief, you're going to always perpetuate continual things that hurt people. Right. And I think none of us are in the business of hurting people. I think we're all trying to do what's right, whatever our perception of right might be. Um, but I think if we can get to this point where we're able to acknowledge things and then help people who have been unfortunately affected by it, then we can move forward in a very amicable way. Let's take a, an example that's happening right now. Uh, you you work with shotgun houses, yeah, uh, yeah. Sh- uh, shotgun homes in mm-hmm. your um, in your work, and uh, tell us a little bit about 
number one, what's happening in like Coconut Grove? Sure, you know, sure. Shotgun Homes and Coconut Grove being a, uh, historically a community that was founded by Bahamians. black Bahamians. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So tell me about your work a little bit with that. Yeah. So um, I was on a search. I mean, as a professor um, of architecture, you have to do research. And I was wanted to see what are some African-American or African diasporic contributions to American vernacular? Okay. Like what is something distinctly black that we can point to and say, we know we built almost this whole country through enslaved labor, but what is something that we have ownership over? Right. And it led me to the shotgun homes by, like, by way from West Africa through Haiti up into the South as a way. So describe those a little bit. Yeah. So uh, in West Africa, there's these structures that were called the linear cottage and those were elevated it was a way of commerce the men were out on the front porch the women on the inside as a way to regress uh it's the way you just built things and then when those people were enslaved and they ended up in haiti they kept building the same way because that's what they knew and it was a similar climate and then when those people through their revolution moved into the u.s and they ended up in the global south of places like alabama georgia etc they brought that housing typology with them again because that's what they were familiar with so when they got there, a lot of the, the people who enslaved them were like, you're going to keep building what you know how to build. And that is this elevated singular structure that's linear that allows passive cooling. It really was a very inventive way to deal with sustainability before we had it. air, air conditioning. conditioning. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> right. So this is what's going on. And so you find these in the in Coconut Grove because where many of the Bahamians came and that's where they settled and they knew the same housing typology. So you have this clear community where people are building a certain way, but unfortunately, it still wasn't the best as far as infrastructure. So sewage and these types of things. So while useful as shelter, not as useful as far as health and wellness. And so unfortunately, those are neighborhoods that get demolished first because they are very blighted. Like they're not very safe and conducive to people's lungs, to air quality. So it is right to try to rebuild and give more adequate housing. But unfortunately, we know when we remove things, how do we create the correct processes to make sure the people who were there before get to come back when things are now taken away? And that's what's happened in a lot of Coconut Grove where the people that were there before are probably renters or second or third generation away and they can't figure out who owns what. And then when things are torn down, it gets into this issue where anybody can go grab it. And who's to say that a person who's been working their whole life trying to find a place to live, can't afford certain neighborhoods, should not have the opportunity to go and also get a home or something, right? right. So it becomes really convoluted when you put all of these structures together because it's not as black and white as people want it to be. There's a lot of nuance. And uh, describe, uh, wh- where does the shotgun house name come from? Yeah, shotgun so house. it started as Linear Cottage because literally a, a very singular rectangular form that's uh, clear proportions. And then the shotgun adage comes in, if you open the front and back door and you shoot a shotgun through you'll go through the entire home without hitting anyone or anything right such an such an american concept right <laughs> absolutely right let's take this thing and yeah like, kick in the front we... door shoot a shotgun through the thing and let's see if it works <laughs> there's like there's like camelback where there's like a second story in the back there's double wides you see a lot of these that get glamorized in places like new orleans or they get on the historic registry so a lot of the ones in coconut grove are now on the historic registry so how do you do that how do you how do you how do you make a place more livable, yeah. more modern and livable, but still keep a piece of that past, which is like, we can't seem to figure that out in Miami. Yeah. And so I, as an outsider, like, to tell us how we fix this, Jermaine. Well, well, this, again, again, it's weird how all this stuff sort of comes together. It goes back to those lessons I learned in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. You have to listen to the constituents. Right. And unfortunately, many times, this isn't just unique to Miami, as many big cities. We do a lot of talking around how we want residents to be a part of processes, but then we don't make it egalitarian. We don't give them the opportunity. We schedule things during the daytime when they have to work 
or we schedule it really late at night when they can't come because they have kids. And then we keep them out of the room when it's time for decision-making processes. We close the door. We don't give them transcripts. They have no idea what's going on, right? So we do this performative action of saying we want these people at the table because they know so much. They have so much ancestral knowledge. But then we're given the opportunity to listen to them. The first thing we do is say, oh, no. Some of these conversations are too high grade for you. You stay out there and just let us know if you give us a thumbs up or thumbs down. I think if we actually empowered those people and gave them the opportunity to really influence things, then we can have what we're all trying to get. It's just a lot of people don't want to deal with it because when you add more voices, it elongates the process. And everybody doesn't want to deal with a four or five year project when it could be done in five months or 12 months, right? Yeah, forget that it destroys an entire, the history of a community. Right, I mean, that's the way people look at it though. Yeah, so tell me about how you tried to incorporate uh, the shotgun houses into your art and what did your art try to say? Tell me about that a little bit. Sure, so uh, the proposal was called Sacred Stoops. Sacred um, Stoops. And, and again, it was my way of sort of trying to trace the lineage again from West Africa through the States and also sort of a, a family story because my family's from the South and through the Great Migration ended up in the North. So oh, okay. literally from- Chicago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so literally from Mississippi, from Arkansas, ended up in Chicago, mom and dad met there. So in my mind, how can I trace this sacred space from the South through the North in an architectural way that hasn't been done before. And so in doing that, I came across a shotgun home. And then with that, I was like, all right, well, what are the components of a shotgun home that's so important? Well, the front porch is critical because everyone's sitting on the front porch where you get your wind, that's where you talk your smack, that's where you build community because you meet the people who are your next door neighbors. One porch isn't a community, five porches is a community, 10 ah, porches is a community, right? right. You, you watch other people's kids, you make sure they're walking into the school bus together, you let them know, you know Miss Bessie who lives next door because sometimes when your parents not home, you sit on the porch with Miss Bessie until your parents come home. And so these are the things that, in my opinion, build community and it's something that isn't just a black thing. Like there used to be a huge community of Cubans here in in Florida that was the exact same way but then as people began to knock down single family homes and build more dense housing you remove the porch and you remove this ability to build community instead people are next door neighbors they might have a balcony and maybe you know their name but it's not like the same fabric it's not the same relationship and so I just wanted to pay homage to that. And so I made a series of chairs because everybody loves the porch chair. And everybody right. knows that's my porch chair. You don't sit on that. And then. This oh, is that right? Everybody. Yeah, everybody's that's the thing. Specific people porch people chair. have a specific chair. They know like, no, 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 no. You don't sit there. I sit there. And then there's the informal porch, right? It's the domino table that's at the park that oh, everybody yeah. sits around because that's where you hang or. It's the wall that everybody sits along when it's too hot outside. I mean, it's too hot indoors. And your grandmother tells you it's too hot in here go outside. I'm not turning on the air yet. Like those right, <laughs> those types right. of things that we all hear. It, it's interesting because I think about all the different ways that being forced inside because of weather has killed a little bit of community, right? <sighs> like not a little bit. It has, has brought us inside our homes and then from inside our homes to inside our, our gated communities, Absolutely. right? We keep moving inside. Absolutely. It, and, and it's fracturing neighborhoods. It's fracturing communities. It's fracturing relationships. It got to a point where I realized I didn't even know my neighbor's names like in, on the floor of the building I live. I was like, I don't know any of these people. I see them all the time. I've never spoken to them. But back home, I knew every single person within a two-block radius. Right. Because you're outside. You're sitting on the porch. You're walking past the street. You're waiting at the bus stop together. You're walking to the corner store. You see people. And you build that way. And right. so as you so accurately mentioned, when everything continues to be internalized, like literally internalized, mm-hmm. how can you build relationships? And then you get into the internet and video games and people don't want to go outside. And like, I think yell at my nieces and nephews to go outside. I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> like, don't you want fresh air? Like, go outside. Uh, tell me about that then, then designing those spaces that, that work outside. Like, what have you learned in South Florida that is like, 
how do you how do you bridge that? How do you how do you get these kids off their screens? Shade, and get them the- <laughs> like shade. It seems seems shade. like a different thing, but shade. Like you give people shade, they'll go outside. Nobody wants to be out in this humidity, in this heat, without any kind of coverage. Right. And that's one of the tough things about certain neighborhoods. Like there just isn't enough shade coverage, whether that's the building itself or it's just tree canopy. And these cities are hot. Yes. And you're standing outside, and you know. Five minutes, you're sweltering, you're sweaty. You probably got to go to work, get on a bus, get even more sweaty. So it really is as simple as shade. And it's funny because you drive through South Florida mm-hmm. and the shady communities with lots of trees add, add a zero to the back of that house Absolutely. price, right? Absolutely. So there's a direct cor- there's, there seems to be a direct correlation between how many trees are in your neighborhood and how shady it is mm-hmm. and, and what the those property values are like. It's a higher quality of living because you have, you want to be outside when you have a nice lush landscape. You want to walk when you know you walk along the sidewalk, you'd be covered by enough shade trees that make it possible, right? Right. Nobody wants to stand at a bus stop that's completely uncovered and it's 105 degrees with 80% humidity during the summer. No one does. Instead, you get in your car and you get in your car, you don't talk to people, you don't see things, you add more traffic as opposed to maybe walking that half mile, which you would have did if you were in Coral Gables, perhaps, or in Brooklyn or somewhere that has enough coverage that allows you to walk around. Right. And so these are like the small infrastructural things that could be done. And that can't be done with palm trees. Like, I know we love to plant palms, but palms are not shade trees. Please preach. <laughs> they Please don't, preach. They don't do anything. Like, you need actual trees like oaks or, or gumbo limbos. These are the things that actually provide shade for people to walk around. And then don't police the people when they find refuge under the tree. For shade, because that's also what happens. You start planting these things like fruit trees and stuff. And then people want to say, well, I don't, I didn't plant this for you. I don't want you getting my avocados or my mangoes, whatever. And it's oh, like, like it's, you're, you're talking to individual homeowners yeah, now. Yeah, like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like, what's the issue, man? We did this huge tree planting thing in Delray Beach, Florida. Okay. And so we planted tons of, of avocado trees, mango trees and stuff. And some of the community people said, well, we don't want the wrong people coming to pick up all of the stuff to which oh, I boy. said. I know what wrong people sounds like. Yeah, right. And so to which I said, like, that's a bit of a dog whistle. Like, don't you understand that the whole purpose of this is to make the community better? And if these if these individuals are able to get food, why is that a bad thing? Yeah, my like, dad, it's funny because my dad was a, an old Cuban farmer. Yeah. And he was like, if a tree doesn't provide shade and fruit, he gonna, he's going to cut it down. Yeah, what, what, like, is it, what is his purpose? Like, right? what does it do? But yeah, we have tons of palms everywhere because they're pretty. They're the thing that people put on postcards, but they, they don't do anything. And God forbid you're driving down the street and, and they're in the median and one of those palm fronds comes exactly, down Exactly, one of those or a coconut or something and smacks you upside the head. Like, it's, it's one of those things. I'd much rather a mango hit me than a coconut. Yes, exactly. I'd much rather a mango. <laughs> much tastier. Uh, we're talking to Jermaine Barnes. He's an architect and artist uh, about... Uh, uh, number one, his art, but also how architecture influences his art. Um, tell me about some of the the rituals, right? Because yep. you talked a lot about rituals, things that happen in spaces, things that are uh, both functional and utilitarian. And these are some of the spaces that you tried to create. Uh, yeah. Since down here. So, um, so I always tell people I'm like an architectural anthropologist and they're like, okay. what the hell is that? And I always say, well, I'm really interested in the way people use space. I'm really interested in the rituals of space. Um, I want to talk to the grandmother who knows that a countertop is big enough for two roast pans and nothing else. Right. Those are the kind of conversations I want to have. And that's a real story with my granny who we got into a huge argument about if these roast pans would fit on the counter. Deep or yeah, wide? Deep. How? It was deep. And she was like, it's not going to fit, baby. And I was like, yeah, it is. I'm a trained architect. I know how this stuff works. I went through six and a half years of school. I have two degrees. I could design a kitchen with my eyes closed. She's just standing off to the side. Well, go ahead try 
couldn't make it fit. She's like, I told you because oh, those wow. things don't fit. <laughs> I know how long they are. I use those all the time. We used that for Thanksgiving last year. I know they don't fit. I'm telling you that they don't fit. And so for me, it's always trying to bring those rituals into the larger zeitgeist. Right. You so, got a, You got a doctorate in grandma there yeah, right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how <laughs> so, so in my mind is like, how do I bring all of this common knowledge to a larger audience right. and celebrate the mundane? Right. Because really all it is, it's a celebration of the mundane. And so that's what a lot of the ritual work is about. It's about celebrating how the, how the porch becomes a hair salon if you sit between somebody's leg and they do your hair. And that's totally fine, right? Or how it becomes um, a red carpet when it's prom season and everybody's out to see young Carlos who he goes on prom and everything, right? Like it's a thing, it's, it's a it's community. And so it's exciting to me. And I hope that it's exciting to other people. And that's why I like to display it. We're gonna take a little bit of a break. And uh, when we come back, I want you, I wanna talk about creating more diverse communities to, to create and preserve some of those things. Uh, this is Sundial on WLRN. We're with Jermaine Barnes and we'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to WLRN's Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias, and we're here with Jermaine Barnes, who is both an artist and an architect. He's got a new exhibit called Rock Roll. It's at the Miami Design District, and it honors Miami's diverse uh, Caribbean communities. So uh, go out there and check it out and interact with it. Um, you know, that leads me to the, uh, another question, which is diverse, respecting the diversity in these communities yes. as we go forward. So it's not a monolith, yes. right? And I read somewhere that something like, Two percent of all architects everywhere are black. It's not good. <laughs> that is two percent of architects everywhere being black is kind of a stunning thing. Yeah, they're not good numbers. So tell me about how you tr how you personally yeah. try to change that trend. How do you how do you uh, you know uh, keep the ladder down and help people get up? <laughs> gotcha. it, you know, gotcha. So one one there's a lot of barriers to education at large. Um, yeah. Architecture deals with a lot of those barriers because for a long time. Um, there's low wages compared to the amount of hours you put in to study because you put in the same amount of hours as a law student or a doctoral student, mm -hmm. but your salary when you graduate is maybe a third of those salaries. Wow. So it's like, why should I continue to pursue this if I'm not making enough money to offset the fact? And then when you add student debt, which is crippling to many people, oftentimes the money that you are supposed to make goes directly to paying those loans, et cetera. So the average person, and this isn't even a racial thing, this is just an economic thing. Right. The average person that can't afford it is like, I don't want to pursue something that takes this long and does not give me financial freedom upon graduation. Right. Because then you have to intern, you got to take all these exams. It's, it is a very long and laborious process. Right. And so what I've tried to do is, I don't believe in unpaid internships. So I always pay all the people, all the students that work for me. Like that is number one. And I'm someone that, that, that Cape Town internship was unpaid. Right. And so that just shows you the financial privilege that I was born into. It was unpaid. Yeah. That my right. parents literally send me to Cape Town, pay my rent and everything while also still taking care of all their finances while I'm there. That's not a lot of students can't do that. A lot of young people can't do that. So I recognize the financial privilege attached to it. And again, that's why it's not even racial. It's economic. Right. And I should I should clarify that uh, two percent of architects in the U.S. Not yeah. everywhere is what I said. And then and then when you add other societal issues like the fact that you spend so many hours in the studio, but if you have to work when you get time to actually do both things. And some professors take that as you being lazy because you're not spending more time in the studio. But it's like, I have to work. If I don't work, I can't pay my tuition. I can't pay my tuition. I can't even be here. Right. And so that's something that I do. And I also try to implore a lot of uh, students of color to become professors 
because oftentimes that's the other barrier and that many people leave academia because they don't have enough people who look like them that when they're going through mental struggles or emotional struggles or family structures have an infrastructure to then help them through those barriers. It's kind of what you talked about when you're growing up, like your parents, even though they were affluent, maybe mm-hmm. to be out of a community that wasn't as affluent, but they f- felt more comfortable within exactly, that community. Exactly. They felt way safer, right? That right. we're safe in how we define it. Right. So for many people at certain institutions, they don't feel safe. It's like, who can I talk to? Right. I know I went through six and a half years of education. I never had a black professor or a black TA. Wow. Ever. So that is that is yeah. incredible. So teaching at the University of Miami, where it's literally like the only black professor we have, many of our black students run to me anytime there's an issue. And there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into that. But wow. it's one that I welcome because I recognize how difficult it can be for them. But then I tell some students, look, you know, you don't have to actually become a licensed architect or a designer. You could become a professor. That is a thing. Right. And by that way, you can now help future students who might want that for themselves. So that's how I gauge my success as a faculty member. How many students do I get into graduate school with over 75% cost of education taken care of and not through loans, through actual grants and scholarships that they do not have to pay back? Because right. anybody can get a loan. We want you to not have loans. Oh, and so I, I yeah. So and how do you do that? Issue. How do you try to bridge that gap? Like what kind so of So some of it is bringing them up to some of my projects. Okay. Ones that even if they have a very small role, their name still gets put on it. So when it's time to put work in their portfolio, someone who might know the project that's maybe at MoMA or on architecture record or on all these websites that a lot of my work finds itself and they see the name that says, say Gabriel Sumar, they're like, oh, maybe this kid's very talented. And now Gabe's at Harvard. He's back, he has two more years of graduate school and then Gabe is finished with his graduate degree That's at fantastic. one of the biggest schools in the entire world, right? That's one of my students from Trinidad. That's gotta be so, so rewarding. Oh, it's amazing. Cause it's one thing to have your work displayed at MoMA, which you've had yeah. uh, work displayed there, but then to that work serve as a, a ladder that brings Absolutely. other people into the conversation absolutely it makes me so happy like I always uh at the school we have to write like an end of year report for our research labs mm-hmm. about what we've done and the first year i wrote mine all i wrote were all the students that were able to get straight a's because they didn't have to worry about taking extra jobs how many of them went to graduate school and the powers were like how is this a metric of your success i'm like because all i care about is these students that get a chance to do other stuff because otherwise they wouldn't have the opportunity and then once i framed it that way they were like oh okay we get it and so now one of my students is, one of my former students is a professor at Cornell. Another former Oof, student wonderful. is at David Ajay and Associates, one of the biggest black architects in the entire world, at his office in New York. And he came out of the gate making $70,000 a year, which is unheard of for a, a kid fresh out of school, right? And these are all people from Haiti, from Cuba, from Trinidad. Because I always have, try to make sure that the, the studio is as multicultural as possible. And so that everybody gets these opportunities that oftentimes more affluent students have and some of our more uh, less economically um, able students don't get. Right, right. Yeah. I, I'm curious about your, your parents and shaping that idea. Like yeah. you're, you're talking about access. What, what did your parents do uh, in, during your, their lives and, and, and how did they make it, how did they make it uh, feasible for you to sure. so, to um, that path? So my dad owned the neighborhood general store. In, oh. our, in our neighborhood so okay. I learned a lot going to the wholesale store with him and probably eating more things that I probably should have that you know when you're, when you're the son you gotta eat and take stuff and okay give me get it, you gotta describe allergic, it right? to me cause it's getting your lunchtime, I'm getting hungry I wanna yeah, hear it yeah right so like it had like the old meat slicer all those types of things so I used to make sandwiches I'd take juices and stuff and he'd be like did you pay for that I'm like nah I did not and, you know you gotta just walk out you gonna fire me I tell mom like you can't do that <laughs> I'm free labor you can't yeah, fire like, me come on man you don't pay me anyway <laughs> and then and then my mother was uh, stay at home until I was in kindergarten okay and when I was in kindergarten she started working 
working for ComEd, which is our utility company. It's our version of FPL. Cool. And so she worked there for the rest of my life until she retired uh, two years ago. And so like I have, I come from a working family. I'm very fortunate to have them. They've been together my entire life. Yeah. Um, what did you learn at that general store? Like, uh, cause that, uh, you, you see everybody in the oh, community that's, store like that. That's right? how I learned to talk to people. Oh, okay. That's literally, that's, that's, that's where all of the, the, the ability to connect with people, have conversations started from, because you never knew who was coming in after a bad day or a good day, who was coming in to play the lottery, who was coming in, just get a bag of chips, who was coming in to get some alcohol because they might've had a rough day or someone <laughs> who might, there was a lot of that, right? Cause yeah. we also, cause the, the store also stole liquor. Right. Like it was a thing. And so I had to learn very quickly, oh, I probably shouldn't give this liquor right now because something bad might happen as oh. opposed to not. Right. So you learn how to talk to people, have conversations and people remember your name. And so to me, it's always important to be personal to everyone, regardless of where they're from, because you never know what will happen. And in turn, these are people who have always looked out for me, have been super, super excited about my success, um, feel like I'm a part of their family because the entire time I was a kid growing up working and cleaning the storage room and all that kind of stuff. They were there watching me do it all and being a part of the process. Yeah, I, I was just there. Our producer just mentioned it too over our notes here that that probably helped you when it came time to be a professor, that idea of talking to people. And absolutely. Having, yeah. Absolutely. Are you naturally, were you naturally more introverted? Absolutely. I still am. Are you? Like I, I, I still am. My mom always wanted me to be a lawyer. So entire life, she's like, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a politician, you're going to be the president. I'm like, lady, <laughs> I'm going to be an architect. You need to calm down. Uh, <laughs> but you also never tell a black mother no. <laughs> kind of just, you kind of just do what she says. And my dad would just be like, hey, man, I'm just here to drop you off. She said, you got to go. You got to go. And so I would go do those things. But it taught me public speaking. It taught me how to be uh, comfortable in large spaces, um, how to be personable, how to shake a hand, look a person in the eye. All things that have been critical to my success, I believe, because it allows me to be a genuine person because I was able to develop things. Now, don't get me wrong. I still hide from people because being out in public does take a lot of energy for me. And sure. I have to recharge. And so I might go weeks where I don't go to any type of events. I'll just go to work, go home, watch a bunch of basketball games and be happy that way. Okay. And then when it's time to pop back out again, I pop back out again and do the things that I have to do. Okay. You going to let us in your home a little bit? What is your, what's your, what's your home life look? Cause I'm here as the, the home of an architect. What yeah. It's like? not, it's actually not stereotypical. Like a lot of people expect it to be like super manicured and stuff. There is art on the wall. So there's that. Okay. And my cutlery is Okay, my cutlery is pretty nice. Oh, okay. <laughs> you invest in the cutlery. Yeah, right? I invest in the cutlery and the plates and stuff. I probably spent way too much money at CB2 oh, getting, getting cutlery listen, and plates and stuff. I feel you there. Yeah, I probably spent way too much. Like, it's all color curated. My parents came and was like, this is what you spend your money on? <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> wouldn't you like the thing that you cook and eat on to be just as nice as the food that you're eating? They're like, whatever, kid. Yeah, so, like, versus like the forks from Sedano's, which yeah, was my you know first fork. Just house. like this is this is this is what I spent my money on. That and sneakers. <laughs> so it's a lot. It's a lot of that. It's very nice things to eat on and very nice shoes to walk around in. Like, All right, sneakers. What's what? What's the last drop that you got? The last drop I got was a pair of Air Jordan threes. I probably have way too many pair of Air Jordan threes, but it is my favorite silhouette. So oh, anytime yeah. a new colorway comes out, I get it, even though I don't need them. I get them because I love that shoe. I love that shoe so much. I love the because because I'm of my era. I'm 47, so yeah. the one, yeah, the yeah, one yeah. is where I'm at. I had so. a pair on last night. I had a pair. I drove the ones on yesterday. I need the lost and found. I need that restock. Okay, so that is nobody 
realizes that's how hard red, it is to that's find the, the best. Yes. That's the red, black, and white. The OG uh, colors. The OG colors. OG colors. That, that our man wore. Yes, it is wore. so hard to get those shoes. And I hate this whole culture of resellers who just get shoes not to not to wear them. Like when I was raised, you buy shoes and you wear the shoes. That's right. Like that's what you do. You that's don't right. buy them and try to immediately resell them or buy five pairs and never show Like you wear the shoes, you walk outside. If they get dirty, okay, so what? That's the purpose. They're shoes. That's right. I'm, I'm sorry to wear my Tom Sachs today because I got those all flexed <laughs> in. I got those all worked that's in. That's supposed to be. That's right. That's what I'm you got to break yeah. some resellers' heart. That is that. what they're for. That is absolutely what they're for. And and uh, so you're a basketball guy. Do you is there a is there a team that you follow? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a huge Chicago Bulls fan. I mean, that goes without saying. Of course. Um, I go to a lot of Heat games, so uh, I do go and pseudo support uh, the team. You better. Yeah, I pseudo support when, when they when they play against the Bulls. I, I'm out. I got nothing to do with it. Otherwise, I go and out. I'll shake a fist. I'll give him a, a Tiger Woods fist every every now and then. All right. Yeah. You best. You best. Yeah. All right. Uh, it's Jermaine. It has been so great to talk with you. I regret, awesome. I regret that we can't do another hour just on basketball and sneakers, yeah. but we might have to do that at some point. Uh, we've been speaking with Jermaine Barnes. He is an architect and artist. Uh, he's an architect at the University of Miami's School of Architecture, and his recent art is Rock Roll, and it's on display now at the Miami Design District. Thank, Thank you so much for having me. And that's Sundown for Monday, January 9th. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Denise Royal produced as well. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bateman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundow's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo. You can find them at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, music as a form of protest. We'll talk with filmmaker Marissa Neff about her new documentary, This is National Wake. It's about a 1980s multiracial punk band in South Africa. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening. Public Media.